A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? I'm Elle Wadsworth and here with me I have Rob Calder and Lindsay Hines. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Today's episode asks the question, what is addiction? Is it a disease? What are the characteristics of addiction? Can you be addicted to your phone? We interview Cami Gutz of the National Addiction Centre, who's working on a cravings trial with uh, dependent users of crack cocaine. As this episode is going to be talking through what addiction actually is, we don't need a brief introduction. So I'm going to jump straight in by passing it to Rob, and he's going to talk to us about the characteristics of addiction. What is addiction, Rob? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, um, so what I'm going to do is go on a very brief um, run-through of uh, addiction, looking at DSM-4, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is... By the American... Psychological Association, and it's got all the diagnostic criteria for all mental health conditions, which yeah. are currently identified, ever-growing. Ever, yeah, ever-growing. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to look at diagnostic criteria for um, for addiction, um, because it gives a, an idea of the uh, the kind of feel of it, of some of the issues, issues around it. And I'm going to do so in about five minutes, which really uh, simplifies uh, a subject which has lots of people working permanently on <laughs> So in DSM-4, uh, they um, they look at four particular uh, traits of addiction, and they look at these co-occurring, and they look at them co-occurring in a pattern that leads to clinically significant impairment, which means that not only are there three of these four things happening, which are tolerance, withdrawal, uh, a loss of control, and preoccupation, but that also um, those... Uh, elements are leading to something that's causing harm to the individual uh, so clinically clinically significant impairment or distress so tolerance withdrawal loss of control and preoccupation so the first one tolerance which you may have heard quite a lot about this kind of comes into two similar things i'm going to give the example of coffee so the first example is tolerance builds when you need more and more of a drug to get the same effect so that would be um needing um, one coffee to get up in the morning and then after a couple of uh, months or years you need two coffees to get up in the morning and then you need another coffee at work so you need more and more to get the same kind of uh, boosting effect. The other side of tolerance is that you get less effect using the same amount so if you have one coffee every morning whereas you know when you start drinking coffee it will get you bouncing out of bed and running to work 
um, after a few years, it barely raises a smile and allows you to, to, to function properly. So you get less effect with the same amount. And that's tolerance. So you have this building tolerance, using more and more of the drug, getting less and less effects. The second element is withdrawal, which uh, people will have heard of um, as well. Um, so this tends to be the opposite of the effect of the drug. So for stimulant drugs, um, which help increase focus and alertness, things like um, uh, cocaine or speed, or um, I think we were talking last week about Ritalin, things like that, the withdrawal, so when you stop using the drug, the withdrawal effect tends to be a lack of focus, an inability to stay awake, an inability to stay alert. Um, for depressant drugs like um, alcohol or heroin, the withdrawal tends to be an inability to sleep, an inability to rest, to, to feel rested, um, and in extreme cases, things like fitting. Um, so you have this increased need, so you're using more and more and more, getting less and less of an effect out of it. And when you stop using, you'll feel really, really horribly uncomfortable. And that feeling of withdrawal can be uh, can be stopped the moment you then use again. So there's a really easy and obvious way to withdraw, to um, get rid of that withdrawal feeling. So that's tolerance and withdrawal. The third arm is um, a control, a loss of control. And again, there's, there's kind of two arms to this. One is taking more and more of the drug for longer than you mean to. So this is, you know, you get up and you say, right, today is going to be my three coffees day. I'm going to have one at breakfast, one at lunch, and one when I get home or something. And you end up every day having seven or eight coffees and a couple of espressos and a few teas in between. You use more than you intend to. And people think, okay, I'm going to have a moderate habit, but actually they find themselves unable to restrict themselves to their plan. The other, the other side of that is a persistent um, attempts to stop that aren't successful. So every Monday you're like, you know what, I'm quitting cigarettes, you know what, I'm quitting coffee, you know what, I'm quitting heroin. And every Monday you're unable to and you relapse uh, consistently. So there's this loss of control. So using more and more of the same drug, um, you're getting less and less of an effect. If you stop using, you go into withdrawal, something that can be reversed if you start using again. And every time you try to get some control over it, you find yourself using more than you expected and unable to stop these three things. Then the fourth thing is this preoccupation thing, which is that more and more of your time is spent devoted to using. Um, uh, in the case of drugs like heroin and crack that are strongly associated with needing lots of money and acquisitive crime, there's committing crime to raise money, to buy the drug, to use the drug, to recover from the effects from the drug, to go out and to, to get money again. And so there's this preoccupation, more and more of your time and energy is spent and focused on this drug use. And this quite often happens in a kind of slow way. So. I'm switching my examples, I do apologise. But it's things like where people start uh, using alcohol, say, on a Friday because people go out after work on a Friday or something. And then it's Friday and Saturday. And then it's Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then you might as well have a few drinks on Sunday. And then Wednesday you have a midweek drink. Um, and then it's Wednesday through till Sunday. And Monday you're feeling pretty terrible. So you might as well have a couple of drinks. And then it kind of gradually um, uh, grows so that it takes up more and more of your time, more and more of your focus, and that's at the expense of other things that you would have enjoyed doing, um, other things that don't involve drugs. So this preoccupation, more and more of your time and focus is spent on that. You you use despite um, uh, bad uh, effects. Your tolerance is going up and up. You're needing to use more. You stop using. You're going to go into withdrawals that you can get rid of by carrying on using. Loss of control and a complete preoccupation. Mm. And the last thing I want to say on that is that. Um, that's a kind of image of the diagnostic criteria of addiction. Um, but that doesn't necessarily help explain what addiction is. 
So it, it tells how we can spot it, how we can see that it's happening. Um, in the same way that a rash can tell you, can help you tell that someone has chicken pox or something. But chicken pox isn't a rash, chicken pox is a virus. Um, and it's the same thing with addiction and diagnostic criteria. This helps you to spot what it is, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what addiction is. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about, Rob, a lot of those um, characteristics do apply across many addictions, but then I think it's also worth mentioning that some addictions don't fall into all of those criteria. So, for example, cannabis dependence mm. um, doesn't come necessarily with a withdrawal syndrome, but you still get people developing tolerance, um, becoming preoccupied with it, you know, um, prioritising the use of it over their work and their social lives and their family. So I think, yeah, and like you're saying, that whilst these are like the kind of building blocks of what it is, they, you know, yeah. they will be experienced differently. Because then once you start trying to <laughs> categorise mental health problems, you come across all this complexity and the fact that actually you haven't just got like one syndrome which explains oh, everything. It's damn like, complexity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So what you're talking about, like the tons from withdrawal, often with drug use comes from the drug itself. So in heroin, people become attenuated, like they adapt to the use of the drug. And, um, Good word. Yeah, attenuated. Yeah, I know words. Um, and uh, yeah, so... <laughs> But we also get these, um, but there's also another aspect to um, addiction, which is the psychological aspects of it. So how people, even if um, it's not a substance which they become addicted to and dependent on, how people can still develop a, a, a dependence through their mind and psychologically and through their behaviours. Um, so I think the really the theory of this from psychology or the most common way the clearest way to explain this in psychology is to look at conditioning. So conditioning is uh, this theory in psychology which came, you know, it's most commonly associated with Pavlov. Pavlov's a guy, he had a lot of dogs, he rang, rang a lot of bells. You know the story. Um, <laughs> we hope you do. Tale is old as time. Um, so the basic theory of conditioning is that um, you can learn a behaviour through reward or through punishment. So you gain a reward from something that makes you kind of want to continue to engage in that behaviour. Um, so, uh, you know, to demonstrate this, I came across a great example today, which is my friend Elle. Hi. Hi, Elle. Um, <laughs> would you like to tell me a little anecdote about when you went to the shops today? Yes, yeah, so I went to the shop today because it was Friday and I was just like, I'll go to the shop and get a treat. Went to the treat, or the shop. <laughs> I went to the shop. And uh, <laughs> as I was buying, buying some treats, I was just like, I'll get a scratch card while I'm here scratched it and I was walking down the street and I was like oh there's a bin there I'll throw it in there when I'm done but oh no wait 40 quid I'd won 40 quid on the scratch card <laughs> isn't that amazing so I turned straight back around and got my money it's a really you know. <laughs> so you're 40 quid up I am you've gone to the shop we've all been to the shop today it's Friday everyone's exhausted True. uh yeah my god um but uh yeah and so you're feeling a bit down you go to the shop um you buy this scratch card you uh you win something and it gives you this really positive feeling suddenly you're like oh my god this is a great result and your mood is lifted and um I can conquer you can concur. thank you <laughs> um and the theory of conditioning would say that um, through repeatedly doing this, if the next time you're feeling a bit down, you're like, oh, should I try another scratch card? Try and get the positive effect again. If you continue doing this and continue to get that positive effect from the behaviour, that's how you can start to develop a dependence on it. You can start to associate that behaviour with a reward. And um, in the brain, uh, that reward tends to come from uh, a neurotransmitter, so a chemical in the brain, a chemical in the brain called dopamine, which basically gives you all good feelings, 
right? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the only thing that makes you feel happy. Yeah, dopamine. Um, and so dopamine comes, uh, you know, it's something that naturally occurs in the brain and which we, um, we get a release of dopamine when we eat or, you know, I guess when we're warm and it's been used uh, as a learning mechanism for all the centuries of humankind to reward the behaviours that keep us alive and keep us functioning. And addiction, uh, drug use, gambling, these things can also release dopamine and therefore it kind of hijacks that system which is naturally occurring within us. And that's how we then come to associate uh, behaviours which can be bad for us with good outcomes. Yeah. So, so, there's like, uh, so there's drugs like crack, um, crack cocaine or cocaine or other stimulants like that that, that directly um, affect uh, dopamine um, uh, release. But there are other... Um, activities that aren't related to dope that aren't that don't hijack the dopamine system but your body naturally releases it anyway and that's the kind of behavioral conditioning that you're talking about yeah i guess yeah so you kind of you get that um because you get a positive reinforcement winning money Mm. your brain's like money great you know (laughs) dopamine this is a really good thing and that's how those systems can come into place um and similarly you can also, through that, develop associations with the things that go on around the use of the behaviour. So, for example, L, when you're saying, I went to the treat earlier. No, you went to the shop. But <laughs> you're, you're now associating the shop with treats. And so you can see that how, if you were to develop a dependence on scratch cards, walking past that shop, uh, you know, you'd then have developed those associations with shop, treat, scratch card. This is a great place, which, um, you know, is going to give me that feeling which I need. Me fluffing my words really paid off. It was yeah. so, <laughs> as a person with a psychology degree, I was straight on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the kind, that's the kind of expertise I spent three years developing in my undergraduate course. <laughs> but I know, so Rob, you've worked in addiction services. You must have countless examples of where this is happening with people who've got addictions, right? Like people who oh the, do- the dopamine but with like around. but no but with um, people associating the things around mm. drug use Cues. with their dependence yeah oh Cues. yeah yeah I mean absolutely the um, a lot of the work that you do so a, a relatively small amount of the work in drug treatment agencies is to do with the medical management of 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 dependency so you know things like methadone or heroin treatment or withdrawal or managing withdrawal of a, a significant part it's a it's a big deal and it's very very important but a lot of the rest of it is about those those cues so it's so people associate their friends um with with that kind of dopamine with that reward and that pattern of behavior so there's a pattern of behavior which which involves them to to meet with their friends in particular places and it, they just happen to be the places where drugs are going to be and where they then become tempted to uh, uh to use drugs um and there's also lots of th- kind of there's lots of uh, people talk about that when they're in withdrawals which we're saying so they're feeling terrible they they need to buy some drugs to use them again to to relieve the the withdrawals that those withdrawals somehow start to alleviate themselves when they've bought the drugs and before they've actually used it and and part of that is the body's natural adaption and natural production of things like dopamine and, and other neurotransmitters so isn't that like there was a study where they had um, heroin users and they um, were testing a control group that was you um, using the same paraphernalia, preparing their her- heroin into the needle, um, you know, 
preparing their arm, preparing their veins, etc. And one control group were using the substance and the other was using the saline solution. And the people with saline solution, as in no psychoactive effect, still got um, a, a high, so to speak, or an effect mm. from actually preparing all their paraphernalia because it was the cues. Mm, yeah, and yeah. the brain is incredibly powerful in that way because, you know, you can have a placebo effect. Yeah. And, it can, and it can become really difficult because the particularly with drugs like I was saying with crack and cocaine <clears throat> that hijack that dopamine system, the reward from those drugs is so great. Um, it is so kind of... In terms of neurotransmitter response. Of, yeah, not, not in like great. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess so in part it's about breaking that association of that huge dopamine reward, but also yeah. I guess what I was thinking was <clears throat> addiction isn't just about the drug or the scratch cards which you become dependent on it's also about those other things which go on around it which then yeah. become associated with and which then make it very difficult to break um that mm. addiction when you're in addiction treatment so people might think if you're giving someone methadone you know you're replacing the in some ways the effect of heroin so you're accounting for the fact that someone's in withdrawal and you're taking away those withdrawal effects but it's not just someone's addiction isn't just about that it's also about all of the things that go on around them and so we are using uh, you know the theories of conditioning in order to treat addiction yeah. so for example contingency management um, which is where you reward you give vouchers or in some cases cash or the opportunity to win something to people for um, people who are in drug treatment for to reward their abstinence if they're proved to be abstinence for urine testing um, to reward them coming for treatment and in that way you're trying to tackle uh, to you know, break the associations that people have with uh, drug use, where they've got, I'm going to use this drug for this reward, and you start to try to get them to have associations with what you want as that positive outcome for them engaging with treatment. So and so, yeah, and so using these psychological theories, um, you can tackle addiction. So let's hear from Cami, who's working at the National Addiction Centre on a trial tackling craving with crack cocaine use. Um, Elle spoke to her earlier this week. I did. Okay, so I'm here with Cami Gutz, and she's uh, from the National Addiction Centre, and she's going to talk to us on the trial that she's working on. So, Cami, what are you working on? Okay, so I'm currently working with John Morrison on a trial that's looking at controlling craving in cocaine dependence. Um, Basically, the trial is aimed at people who are using cocaine, and because we're based in South London, this tends to be crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. And uh, what we're trying to do is that John Marsden and his team has come up with a new kind of psychological therapy that that tries to help people to reduce their cravings. Cognitive behavioural therapy seems to be the current therapy that's available for people that struggle with cocaine dependence, but um, it still doesn't have very great outcomes. So we're trying to find a new therapy that is specifically targeted at cravings. And the way we try to do this is with this new therapy that's based on a a few techniques that have been used in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. We think of cravings as this intense desire for people, for example, to want cocaine, but this intense desire is further elaborate as it's, it's, a, it's like an intrusive thought that constantly comes back to you and kind of keeps tapping on your shoulder until you kind of give in to it, which in this case would be to go buy drugs and use it, thinking that it will relieve you, but in the end it kind of comes back and keeps tapping at your sh- on your shoulder again until you, um, you relieve it again. And so we kind of found parallels with post-traumatic stress disorder where there's very intrusive thoughts where you have no control over and and no matter how hard you try to push them away, they keep coming back. So what we're trying to do is we kind of target these intrusive thoughts 
and we do that through a process called memory reliving. The idea behind memory reliving is that if you kind of recall memory and it's very vivid and you kind of recall it in first person, it becomes live. And um, by becoming live, it means we can change it. That doesn't mean erasing it. It's not some kind of memory crazy manipulation. It just means that you can change the meaning of it. So it's almost like you're asking the person to go through the memory as if it were a movie. And what you'll find is that in the memory, there are aspects that are of high emotion. So for example, someone felt really, really angry. And because of that, the craving started. So they got in a fight, for example. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, and then they wanted to... Um, start using so what we try to do then is kind of walk up to that bit where they get very angry and then ask people to almost come out of the memory and be like why were you angry what 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 was that experience like those kind of things so we look at the thoughts and we try to restructure it in a, in a way that decreases your craving so basically what we try to do is we try to re-script that memory we call it or update it and we know that didn't happen in real life, but if we repeat it often enough, it becomes a memory on its own within your head. So what we do, for example, is that rather than you ending up buying because they're angry, we get you to go home and take a bath in your memory. And uh, we, because it's a study, we've done it, we've recruited 30 people, done this with 15, and the other 15 don't do the same. They just get treatment as usual, plus another exposure that we do with both groups, and that exposure is a box. And we create a box with... So here it would be with paraphernalia, so used crack pipes, that kind of idea. Um, we get people to take photos of their surroundings because any kind of cue in your surrounding, whether it's a bus stop, we put those photos in a box. And then we meet them uh, for an entire week. And on the Monday and on the Friday, they do this box exposure where we ask them to go through the box and kind of work up their craving. And there's also, again, the idea of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that if you kind of face what you fear, repeatedly at some point your fear is gonna decrease and then we follow up with them at the end at one week one month three months and see how they're doing that's really interesting so is this the first of its type 
Um, as far as we know, yes. So there's people that have done the kind of exposure where, you know, you get people to kind of face the cues and face the cravings. There's people that have done some kind of cognitive, cognitive restructuring of, um, of their behaviours, but there's been nothing in the, in the idea of doing the two together and there's definitely not been any kind of adaptation of this post-traumatic stress memory reliving for craving. What is craving? There's two ways to look at it. There's the one way that craving is just an intense urge. It's really needing and wanting something very badly. The other way to look at it is kind of more in depth and this idea that yes, it is this urge and that it gets start kickstarted by something in your environment, for example, whether it's, again, you seeing a bus stop where you always meet your dealer or maybe an emotion, if maybe anger is your trigger. And that can then create this intense urge. And that first happens, let's say, unconsciously. You know, it kind of bubbles up inside and it gets triggered. You might not realize what that funny feeling in your stomach is. And then it kind of starts elaborating more consciously into your mind and you start getting these thoughts, such as I should use, I want to use, I have to use, those kind of things. And then that comes with drug memories. So the craving then kind of makes you think about all the previous times that you've used and how that was, and often it will be a quite positive memory. A lot of people were associated back to almost the first time that they used, and that nice feeling that they got from using. And so is that in a similar way, I guess, in everyday life too, I have a craving for... Carbohydrate pizza? And, yeah, craving for pizza, <laughs> craving for pizza. Yeah, it's definitely the same as a craving for pizza, because you'll notice yourself as well with it starting very small. And then you kind of start convincing yourself that you want it. And then, you know, you, at first you might not even realize why you have the craving for chocolate or pizza. Maybe it's your blood sugar that's low. So that's a physical response that triggers the craving. And then slowly it builds up to, oh, I want it. I've worked so hard. It's four o'clock. I should deserve chocolate. And then also, again, the future expectation, oh, it's going to be really nice. I'm going to be able to focus on my work again. And that kind of appraisals of the craving. Craving is really important to look at within addiction and especially within relapse of addiction because it's something that persists beyond abstinence. So actually, sorry, there's two ways to look at it. Again, it's within addiction itself when you're still dependent and kind of stuck in the dependence. Cravings are the, are the, are the thing that propel it, that will constantly make you go back because you're feeling this urge that's not leaving you alone and you're constantly being like experiencing this push towards it whereas in relapse it's really important because of the fact that even though you stopped using the craving can still come because the craving is based on your previous memories of that drug it's based on this idea that you had a habit you've been using for let's say eight ten years you've persistently over and over been using and so it is really easy for people that have been who are have not been using for a while to get a trigger and that then elaborates into a bigger craving and then that then kind of pushes them back in a place where they don't necessarily want to be. With the with the craving uh, trial and re, you know rechanging the memories and yeah. stuff, is that preparing for the aftermath of when you stop taking cocaine? Tools, oh right, yeah. I guess. So we do, yeah, we do kind of provide them a toolbox of different things to use with. What we like to say is that we try to give them five seconds to think before they straight away go and use. Because what you find as well with addiction is that what started maybe off as a recreational habit or a recreational well not a habit really it mm. becomes a habit it becomes very automatic a lot of people have described it to us as being on autopilot and what happens is that they get triggered and then they just go they don't even they, they don't stop and think they just do so what we're trying to do is to give them the tools to have those five seconds to stop and think and kind of look forward and think 
if I use now, where am I going to end up? Whereas if we give them those five seconds to think about that option and to also, th also think about the other option of, actually, I could choose not to use, then there's a big likeliness that their craving's going to drop. And I guess with time, that five seconds becomes 10, becomes exactly. 20. Exactly. And then on and on, so you've yeah. got longer time to, yeah, think about it, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that was me chatting with Cammy. Thanks, Cammy. Um, so we were talking about different models of addiction with Cammy, and I just want to speak more, I guess, about the disease model of addiction um, that's quite prevalent in our society today. Uh, so the disease model of addiction it describes the addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease. So the traditional like medical uh, terminology of a disease, uh, quote, requires only that an abnormal condition be present that causes dis discomfort, dysfunction or distress to the individual afflict afflicted. So in that way, addiction does actually fit in with it. It sounds like what Rob was saying earlier. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and as we were just speaking in the podcast, it is because of it changes the brain pathways. And so it's actually affecting the body in some sort of way, causing discomfort and mm. dysfunction. So there are benefits to the disease model. For example, if you put it in the bracket of being a disease, it's arguably gets easier to um, uh, financed for treatment. And also with the stigma, if it's called, if it says it's an, a, a disease, then people will see it as a medical issue and take lighter mm. on those who are addicted. Well, the argument against that is that it only adds more stigma in the mm. fact that it's bringing it all down on the individual, whereas addiction uh, is a complex matter. It's true that, um, like I was saying, because what I tend to look at in my research is things that raise people's mm. risk of addiction or things which happen in people's childhood which mean they're more at, you know at risk of addiction and so things like um, having been uh, neglected or through abuse as a child you know those people are more likely to develop addiction people who have um, mental health problems when they're younger like um, conduct disorder so a lot of antisocial behavior and um, depression those people are also more likely to develop addiction and you often see that addiction develops along the at the same time as a lot of other mental health problems so it tends to be that not everyone but a lot of people who develop addiction do have these vulnerabilities in their background which we as a society tend to be very sympathetic to but once people have developed addiction we have a lot less sympathy towards that person I think. Yeah so I guess when it comes down to a disease as an addiction a disease it's all reliant on you so it's a bit um I guess more damaging to the individual, like, mm -hmm. oh, well, why have I done this? Why am I in this situation? Yeah. And it's more stigmatizing in that way. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is one of the things with models because it's not because um, we're looking at a disorder which doesn't have a virus at the bottom of it. It doesn't have a specific cause, um, and there's no single unifying um, theory which explains addiction. There are a lot of models that can be useful in different circumstances. So for some people. The, the disease model is is really, really useful because it means that for the rest of their lives they know they're an addict and they need to not use um, drugs because they have that disease. Um, an and addict. That, yeah, yeah. There, was, there were air quotes. Yeah, there was air quotes. <laughs> I could see them when you were saying that. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, that's really helpful. You're um, um, and for other people that can be quite a disheartening model because um, other people might think after five years of, of abstinence that, well, if I'm still an addict and I've been putting in all this work for five years, then I might as well carry on um, using and have that part of it as well. So I think there's something about models where there is a kind of drive to find out what's the best model or the most accurate model. 
But there are also models that are more useful for some people and uh, more useful for other people. I guess when we're talking about the media as well, they tend to stick with the, the moral model of addiction, which would be that, you know... Um, those who use is that alright no it's just to quote you from an earlier uh, episode of what's the crack drugs <laughs> yeah exactly exactly the drugs <laughs> the media model is that drugs are crazy and that anyone who takes them are demonised and that there's horrible people mm. and oh so the thing with addiction is that it can be overcome uh, not always but with a result of willpower changing perspectives and the support of your family and friends which is what other diseases such as cancer or diabetes cannot be done with. You need medication for that. Yeah, and, and that's that's the wing of treatment that uh, we talk about as kind of psychosocial treatment, which are things that aren't, aren't medicines, but are things like CBT, like motivational interviewing, talking therapies, changing social situations, improving employment prospects, those kinds of things that can be used as treatment to help people. And you can get that really oversimplification of the message, that kind of distortion again through the media, which which then kind of says, well, in which case people can just think themselves sober, which is an, a massive oversimplification. And this comes into that preoccupation thing. So again, when you've got someone who's like 24 um, seven existence is preoccupied with taking and using drugs, they have very little in their life that will help them to not use drugs. So like positive relationships, like work, like uh, friends, mm-hmm. um, like tennis running you know whatever yeah. things that'll kind of help you have alternatives and and that's that you know it's, it's building those things in but doing so in a kind of treatmenty way it's not just saying go for a run and you'll feel better it's saying right what elements of your life can we improve incrementally so that you've got something to build on mm. um, so with what we've been discussing and we've been talking mainly on substances can we focus this on maybe more behavioral addictions as in the question is can you be addicted to your phone I would love to talk about this. Please, because, please talk about this. <laughs> Just because everyone, I see it all in the, I see it personally in the media all the time, you know. Is this person addicted to their phone? Can you be addicted to your phone? I don't know. Personally, I don't buy it. But that's all I got. I mean, so, okay. So I guess that I think there's, it's important to differentiate between habit and addiction. And as we've talked about within this, addiction comes with so many you know, mm. things around it and so many harms that I don't think that whilst you might be compulsively checking your phone, like just used to checking it, used to relying on it, I don't think that's an addiction. There was in the papers, I think a few days ago in the media, saying oh, the that media. the media, mm. the media as a whole, um, that youth are replacing drugs and alcohol for their phone, as in that's a very broad uh, headline that I've just said yeah, yeah, but as in they're getting the um, they're getting the, the dopamine or the, the hit from checking their phone and getting their Instagram likes and getting their Facebook likes and they're spending so much time on their phone that it is taking away they from no time for they've got use. no time for drugs or alcohol <laughs> yeah I guess that's true but I'd be interested if it's true of the youth who are at risk of addiction yeah. Because but does that. it have all the? Uh, uh, does it have tolerance? Does it have withdrawal? Does it have control? <coughs> and does it have preoccupation? Yeah, I do, it's um, it's one of those strange things about these kind of behavioural um, disorders that a lot of them, and, and I think addiction included, um, are kind of extreme versions of behaviour that people exhibit. One of the things when we're looking at diagnostic criteria is that thing about things being clinically significant and causing distress. And so we tend to look at, at behaviours that are causing clinical problems and are causing people distress. So technically speaking, someone could be um, 
someone could be addicted to a substance, but if it's not causing them clinical impairment and it's not causing them distress and they've no intention of, of quitting, and they may not consider themselves to be addicted, they may not meet diagnostic criteria for it. So, um, yeah, and so there is now suggestions from people, um, academics in the field, such as Jürgen Rehm, Robin Room, that we should be changing how we consider addiction and thinking of it instead of um, all these clinical criteria just as heavy use over time. So have you been using yeah. it at a very heavy level over a long period or a set period of time, in which case we'd consider that problematic yeah. use. And everyone is heavily using their phones over a long period of time, mm. but I still don't think that phones... For most people, phone addiction comes into that because I think that when you talk about heavy use, it has to be heavier than the rest of the population. I think the norm of phone use is now so heavy that it would be difficult to pick out a section of people who are problematic. But I, I also, I also think that um, the thing, one of the in, really interesting things about addiction and why people are so fascinated with it, with it, or well, certainly one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with it, is because it touches on things that I think a lot of people can can recognise. So the idea that you're doing something that you don't necessarily want to do, that's causing you harm, but that you keep on doing it because it kind of feels fun. I think most people have something in their life that that they can relate to with that, whether it's um, whether it's around uh, foodstuffs or, or not going out or going out. People don't always act in their own best interests. They quite often prioritise something that, that will give them a bit of a thrill over their long-term good. And I think that's why people are quite fascinated with addiction because it, it resonates with people. But... And I think that's where addiction starts at one end of a, of a continuum of, of someone checking their phone a little bit more than they'd want to and maybe neglecting their partner or something because they're doing it. And at the other end of the continuum, you've got 24-7 heroin and crack use. And somewhere along that line, um, for research and diagnostic purposes, we have to draw a line and say above this line is, is clinically known as addiction and below it is you know heavy use or something. Um, so I think there, there are traits below that line which, for which the addiction models can be quite useful, but it, that wouldn't necessarily mean that below that line was addiction. I think it's the same with depression. You know, above a certain line, people have clinical depression, and that shouldn't ever be confused with the kind of very, very common low-level depression that lots of people suffer from. It doesn't mean that these people aren't suffering from a sort of depression, but it's definitely very, very different from that clinical depression. Uh, debilitating depression yeah. that people um, diagnosed with it have. Yeah, so with depression that's the difference between feeling a bit of low mood for yeah. a few weeks and you know not being able to get out of bed and not yeah. being able to attend your job because your mood is so low. Yeah. So yeah, and I guess that's also why I, when we talk about are people addicted to their phones or social media, it to me doesn't feel yeah. like we can say it's addiction because it is the having a low mood for a couple of weeks end of the spectrum of addiction. Yeah. It's you know, yeah, you're checking it a lot, but you haven't lost your family, your kids haven't been taken away, and you're at no risk of um, your relationship breaking down because of your use of social yeah. media. There is kind of caution about using terms uh, kind of quite loosely, um, but but it doesn't stop there being traits that, that exist on either side of the line. What is addiction? It is complex, and there's so many aspects to addiction. I think, but we've covered quite a lot. There. Yeah, I think let, let's let's remember that there's like a with drug addiction, there's a physiological aspect to addiction, there's a psychological aspect to addiction, and then there are also the social aspects of addiction, which is um, often comes into play in treatment. So I guess addiction is 
very multifaceted and like a lot of mental health conditions doesn't just fit within a disease model because it's you know people are complicated and psychology is complicated as well amen so thanks everyone that was another episode of what's the crack as always if you want to contact us we're on twitter at what the crack pod and just want to say the day someone uses hashtag crackpot idea for our tweet will make my life because no one ever does. <laughs> this is a challenge. Someone use the hashtag crackpot idea, please. Great hashtag. It would be great. Even just to say hey. Just to say hey. We heard about your, your hashtag. <laughs> we, we, made it, we made it to the end of the What is Addiction pod. <laughs> yeah, we do not know if anyone does. Uh, as we're based within the National Addiction Centre, all three of us, we should mention that if you're interested in learning more about drug use and addiction, there is a online free six-week online course. Go to Future Learn and look for addictions. I'll put all the links on the uh, it description of the podcast. Anyway. Yeah, the great thing about that is that Rob is going to be working on it. So if you really want to annoy Rob, you can <laughs> start saying loads of comments. Yeah, you can specifically target him through that, Excellent. or or you can tap into his expertise. Less likely, but um, <laughs> you might want to do that. Also, we have um, in the Addiction Centre a master's course. So if you want to get a formal qualification in. Um, treatment causes policy uh related to addiction i'm an alumni oh to me too yeah you guys are alumni yeah we think it's great so have a great day see you later bye. bye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 